0: this podcast is made possible not just in part, but entirely by the support of you, the listeners. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Tom Hartman Program, Ring of Fire, Bill Moyer's Journal, Counterspin, The Progressive Magazine, The Young Turks, and The Rachel Maddow Show, with a bonus clip today for our iPhone app users from Ring of Fire.
1: My cat tonight believes Americans have too much stuff, but how else are we supposed to fill up our too much house? Please welcome Annie Leonard. <laughs> Bang! Hey, Ms. Leonard, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for
2: having me.
1: Now, young lady, you are the author of a book called The Story of Stuff. Yep,
2: Just out today.
1: Just out today, and it's is in support and related to a very popular film that you have up on the internet. It's a craze called The Story of Stuff. Um, and I believe we have a clip right now. Jim Shelton we're talking about.
2: Some analysts say we have less leisure time than any time since feudal society. And do you know what the two main activities are that we do with the scant leisure time we have? Watch TV and shop. In the US we spend three to four times as many hours shopping as our counterparts in Europe do. So we're in this ridiculous situation where we go to work, maybe two jobs even, and we come home and we're exhausted. So we plop down on our new couch and watch TV, and the commercials tell us, you suck, so you gotta go to the mall to buy something to feel better, and then you gotta go to work more to pay for the stuff you just bought. So you come home and you're more tired, so you sit down and you watch more TV, and it tells you to go to the mall again, and we're on this crazy work, watch, spend treadmill, and we could just stop. Wow. But <laughs>
1: we could, we could stop. But why would we want to? Because right now, we're winning.
2: <laughs> we're winning in what? The collection of more stuff? You said we're beating the Europeans oh. on
1: how much we, we, <laughs> we shop and spend, right? Well,
2: you know, we used to own our stuff and now our stuff owns us stuff has taken the place uh, that,
1: That's that kind of an easy thing to say but but what what does that mean our stuff owns us
2: what that means is we're making such a priority about getting and keeping and maintaining and fixing and putting back on the shelves and untangling the cords and all the Absolutely. stuff that we have to getting do getting and stuff. spending
1: I increase my
2: powers Right. It's it's at a great personal cost. Our quest for more stuff and then the work you have to do to maintain it is taking the place of things that provide deeper happiness. Things like leisure time, time with family, having a sense of purpose beyond yourself, the quality of your social relations. Study after study shows that the things that really makes people happy is not that new flat screen TV, but it's having a sense of community and a sense of purpose. But we're so busy shopping.
1: Let's make some friends for you right now. You must think this economic downturn is fantastic then because people have less money to go you know spend things they have to be with their families they have to entertain themselves with conversation and stuff like that you must be going Wee! Let's have a depression. (laughs) Is that what you're saying?
2: I'm excited about the potential of this economic downturn to get us to think a little more critically and a little more strategically about where we spend our dollars. When there's less dollars to spend, we gotta think about, is it really worth that extra job working that weekend to get this new car or our 15th pair of shoes or our 32nd T-shirt? Is it really worth the toll on our personal lives as well as the toll on the planet to just keep consuming more stuff?
3: You
1: say that stuff, stuff, has a secret life. What what do you mean by that? Are you saying that my beanbag chair is... gay? What what do you mean? What what, what do you mean?
2: Well, all of the stuff in our lives has a a life before it comes to us and a life after us. And I actually got so curious that I spent ten years traveling the world looking at the factories where our stuff is made and the dumps where our stuff is dumped. And I saw that all along the way, there are huge hidden environmental, social, and health costs that are often out of sight and out of mind. But the good news—what well, is what did it... you
1: discover? My understanding is that it comes from China and it goes—I don't care.
2: It goes back. To, it goes back to China, unfortunately. Oh, does it doesn't really? It goes to back to China often. So or it's Africa. the
1: circle of life. It's, pr- it's perfect. It's like a water cycle. <laughs>
2: The problem is that the production causes a lot of environmental and health problems and the disposal causes a lot of environmental and health problems. So it's not really fair to shunt the dangers of producing it and disposing it overseas while we get the very short benefit of using it. It's just not fair.
1: Now, um, I hate to point this out, but this, this, this book um, is stuff.
2: <laughs> it is. And what, what,
1: If someone were to throw it away, what would happen to it?
2: Well, you would compost it because it's 100% paper and it's non um, non-metal. It's soy-based ink, and there's no solvents in the to- in the glue, so it'd be totally easy to compost. But I hope somebody won't throw it away. You could donate it to your library. You could share it with your neighbor. There's a lot of things to do with it. You could so eat I can
1: compost this. This could actually become an ear of corn.
2: <laughs> it could, but let me tell you, I am not against stuff. The fact that this is stuff is not bad. I'm actually for stuff.
1: Oh, I... good, because I was afraid you were going to take away my stuff.
2: No, I'm, I want us to have greater reverence and appreciation for our stuff. Instead of this just mindless buying and chucking all the time, I want us to look at our uh-huh. stuff and think, someone made this, someone mined those metals, someone felled that forest or, or you know, produced those crops or fished in the ocean or whatever they had to do to get that stuff. Someone brought it to us. Let's have a little more appreciation and reverence for the stuff we have instead of this mindless consumerism all the well, time. congratulations
1: what? on the success of the film. Uh, over 10 million people have seen it. Yeah. Um, have you thought about putting out uh, like plastic action figures to go along with <laughs> <and think>? it?
2: <laughs> Um, we get a lot of requests for that from people who I don't think have actually watched the film. So what I encourage them and all your viewers to do is actually watch the film, The Story of Stuff.
1: All right, The Story of Stuff, Annie Leonard, a book of the same name, appearing today. Buy it. Don't throw it away.
3: Yeah. Time to
4: take out the trash. You know it's easier, time to take out the trash, you know it's easy, but it seems harder every in time, and try
3: to think about it, it took me a while, but
5: So the state
6: of the the economy is perilous, the state of the environment is far more so. Dr. James Hansen is here with us, member of the National Academy of Sciences, adjunct professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Columbia University and Columbia's Earth Institute, director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He's frequently called to testify before Congress on climate issues. His background in space and earth sciences is extraordinary. Uh, he's the guy who one of one of the people I would say, in my opinion, the person who first advised us of the dangers coming. He has a new book out: "Storms of My Children," "Storms of My uh, Grandchildren." Excuse me. "Storms of My dot com is the website for the book. The subtitle: "The Truth." about the coming climate catastrophe and our last chance to save humanity. And also, I should add, uh, uh, James Hansen has uh, been a great source of inspiration, and many of us have been writing about this for many years, myself and, and uh, people like my friend Bill McKibben, who, who mentions you at every opportunity he gets, Dr. Hansen, welcome to our program.
7: Thanks for having
6: me. Thank you for being here with us. More importantly, thank you for being over all these years in the face of all the crap that has been thrown at you by these large transnational carbon-based corporations, the guy who, who just keeps standing there and is telling the truth over and over and over again. I so honor you and the work that you're doing. Tell us, uh, Dr. James Hansen, your book, Storms of My Grandchildren, uh, early on in the book you have a, a, a beautiful photograph of your, your granddaughter. Um, your 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 motives and the motives of many people in the in the um, climate change concern arena, I, I, I don't know what you would call it, have been often uh, questioned by the uh, corporate shills as oh they're just trying to get more money for their research projects or tenure at the university or blah de blah blah, blah. Um, Tell, tell us your thoughts on why you and so many of your colleagues are are so committed to this effort.
7: Yeah, well, of course, that, that charge is, of course, complete nonsense. In fact, when I first came on the scene in a significant way, it was 1981, when I published a paper in Science uh, a Journal, which was reported on the front page of the New York Times by Walter Sullivan, the science writer, I promptly had my funding... Uh, that was to be coming from Department of Energy uh, canceled because of that. They did not like the publicity uh, given to the global warming issue. Yeah, this, of course,
6: during the Reagan administration, in fact.
7: Yeah, yeah, but uh, in general, that has often been a problem, and that has caused scientists, I think, to be reticent, many scientists, to be reticent about speaking out because... Mm you may temporarily uh, get some favor from some politicians but on the long run you're going to suffer. So that, that was of course nonsense. Now what I did in the 1980s was testify to Congress uh, several times and after it got a lot of attention in 1988 because of the drought then in 1989 because I revealed that the administration had changed my testimony. I then decided to get out of that business of public uh, speaking because it's not, not my fort. And um, and I get I, my, I my pleasure from science the way that Richard Feynman did. He uh, mm-hmm. calls it the pleasure of finding things out. Yeah. So for 15 years, I, I maintained this uh, vow not to accept television interviews and such thing and leave that to people who... really good at it and who enjoy it, like Steve Schneider and Michael Oppenheimer, Mm -hmm. but finally I got to the point when I had grandchildren uh, where I realized that the public policy was just not addressing this at all, and the public didn't understand the matter, and I decided I was going to give one talk in which I really tried very hard to back it up with scientific papers and get publicity in Washington DC and and anyway it turned out that one talk uh, didn't do it and I kinda got dragged into it more and more over the last five or six years
6: Mm -hmm. now you originally had suggested that um, we First of all, to to set some numbers, before the Industrial Revolution, the level of carbon dioxide in the air in parts per million was what?
7: About 280 parts per million.
6: Okay, and right now it is where?
7: There's 387 uh, last year, 209, and it's going up 2 DPM per year.
6: Right. And, and originally you had suggested that 450 was a, a number that we really needed to, to stop at or, or all hell was going to break loose. You have recently revised that back down to 350, thus uh, inspiring Bill McKibben to start his 350.org. Do I have that right?
7: Yeah. In fact, he was going to start an organization called 450.org um, until he asked me to just reaffirm that that was the right number. Mm-hmm. and i and i said uh unfortunately we screwed up yeah um i had um, when i had the opportunity to speak to the bush administration the vice president cheney and and six cabinet members um i had made the argument that 450 would probably keep additional global warming at about one degree Celsius, which would be about a two degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level, actually 1.7 above the pre-industrial level, and some prior interglacial periods had been warmer than the present one, and I thought that that they um, suggested that somewhat warmer would be uh, that much warmer might be okay, but mm. what has become clear in the last three or four years is that the Earth's history shows us that the system is more sensitive than we thought and also ongoing observations of the Arctic sea ice and especially things like the ice sheets, the Greenland ice sheet, and
6: the glaciers around the world.
7: They're already beginning to lose mass at a faster and faster rate so it's clear we've moved into And we've already seen the the climate zones shifting. That's Mm -hmm. why Southwest United States is beginning to have more Right, uh, dry periods, more forest fires. Um, yeah,
6: absolutely, and then the storms are more severe. We're talking with Dr. James Hansen, his new book, "Storms of My Grandchildren: The Truth About the Coming Climate Catastrophe and Our Last Chance to Save Humanity." Sir, I'm 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 very sorry. We have about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes left here. What are the most important things that our listeners can do? What What, what are the steps that have to be taken, and how can citizen activists facilitate those?
7: Yeah, it it uh, let, let me mention the most important thing. Uh, um the problem is that fossil fuels are the cheapest form of energy. Um, and as long as that's true, they're going to be used more and more. The reason is that they're not made to pay for the damages that they do to human health and the environment and the future for our children and grandchildren. Um, we have to put a gradually rising price on carbon emissions.
6: A carbon tax.
7: Uh, I- Well, no, I would call it a non-tax because you have to give back 100% of the fee that you collect. The fee should be collected at the mine or port of entry Mm -hmm. from the fossil fuel company at the first sale. And the money then should be distributed to the public so that they have the wherewithal to make the changes in their lifestyle the next time they purchase a vehicle. Uh, they get a more efficient one. They insulate their homes. They do the things that are necessary to reduce their carbon footprint and keep their prices because they are going to have to pay more.
6: Yeah, A a lot of this is what Denmark is doing, isn't it?
7: Yeah, to some extent this is being done in Europe, but it's not across the board. Mm. It has to be at the mine or port of entry so that it covers um, carbon uh, completely. Right. And the only way that it's going to to work and the public accept it as if they get get the money, rather than Congress deciding to hand it out to the special interests the way they they do now.
3: up with this Exelon story. I love this story only because the Chamber of Commerce, we've always had this notion, first of all, that the Chamber of Commerce is a mom and pop organization. It's not. They don't have anything in common with mom and pop anymore. The people that run Chamber of Commerce are, you know, people like Exxon and, you know, John Deere, and uh, Monsanto. Monsanto, you name it. If they're, you know, if they're a big corporation, those are the interests that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are looking out for. Now, Exelon says, look, these people Uh, no longer represent normal America. They don't represent the best interest of mainstream America. But you know what really pisses me off about this story? Let's go down the list. Alcoa is a member. They could pull out. They should pull out. Caterpillar is a member. Deer, Dow Chemical, Duke Energy, Eastman Kodak, IBM, Toyota, Xerox. These people (laughs) ought to have enough decency and character to say, look, we don't have anything in common with you gray-haired, idiotic dinosaurs that are running that organization. I mean, well, really, all, it's run by the, old, ball-headed dinosaurs.
8: All the companies that you mentioned are companies that have publicly supported the cap-and-trade bill. And that's the bill that the Chamber of Commerce is saying that they're going to pull out all the stops to try to kill this bill. Now, that statement by the Chamber of Commerce and that campaign by the Chamber of Commerce, one of the things that they said that was controversial 2 weeks ago was that we should have a scopes monkey trial like they did yeah. you know the, um,
3: somebody told them that somebody failed to tell them the, you know who won
8: and who lost <laughs> well no i, I mean I, they, in the scopes trial the, the it was william jenning's bryan right. who won the trial right. and he was arguing that evolution, that creationism should be taught in schools, that evolution was unproven. And so it was kind of the flat earthers who won the Scopes Monkey Trial. And these guys are essentially admitting, yeah, pla- we need another one of those yeah, to, we're, we're, to do some of the flat, if the flat win or, again. Exactly. That's, anyway, that's some of the chamber's biggest members, not only Exelon, but also Pacific Gas and Electric, which is, I think, the largest public utility in the country, and PNM Resources have also recently withdrawn in protest of of the chamber's position. They've withdrawn, Mike, in the face of a new report that predicts the most dire consequences ever, that this expresses the accepted science today, that there's going to be a 6.3 degree Fahrenheit rise in temperature by the end of the century, even if the world's leaders fulfill their most ambitious climate pledges. And this is, I remember when we first started talking about climate change, and it was regarded as catastrophic and also unthinkable, that the temperature would rise, global temperatures would rise more than one degree at the end of the century. That was regarded as the apocalypse. Now they're saying 6.3 degrees.
3: You, you know, Bobby, you know something that's, that's developing that's great, though, is you've got this organization, 350. Now, what 350 is an organization, 350.org. Now, the reason that's an important organization is because people don't, they don't have a clear view of what we have to do to turn all this around. Now, the, here it is. The, this idea of 350 is 350 50 parts is it parts per million of car, of carbon gas left in the air. Well, I mean if you get there then we stop global change. Now, unfortunately, we're about 385 parts per million. And the beauty to this new organization is they're getting everybody to focus on the idea that there is a magic number you know there is a number that we need to get
8: to. It's not, it's not to avoid It's not going to avoid change. It's not going to avoid some climate chaos, but it will derail the apocalypse that is now headed our way. And since 2000, the average rate of melting at the 30 largest great glaciers on nine mountain ranges around the world has doubled. Okay, let me ask Dead you. Let me a,
3: ask you a question. Did Obama do enough? In front of the UN did he come out and did he state the principles of what we have to accomplish in his UN speech well, uh, people are all over him about this they're saying look at what a milk toast approach i mean what was your what was your take on it
8: you know i i understand what obama is doing and why he's got to do it because we have a, in the united states senate it's going to be very difficult to get this bill through and if he names a specific target at this point the opponents will rally around that and say that, okay, this is going to be the end of the economics, the capitalist system of the United States of America if we try to embrace these targets. So he has a hard – he has a very tough road to Mike, in Copenhagen, because almost any agreement that would be embraced by the environmental community – And by the world community will be turned down by the United States Senate. But but see, he knows Um, he knows this. this.
3: He knows a 17 percent reduction by 2020 doesn't mean anything. It means nothing at all. Right? That doesn't mean. Exactly. But every scientist looked at it, said, "Look, it's ridiculous. It's not going to change anything. You got to get to that 350 magic mark, and to do that, you have to do something very aggressive." He knows that, and you're saying that basically he's playing politics right now. Uh, You know, I guess (laughs) sometimes you just. The rest of the world's taking a stand. I mean, you've got people really rest The rest of the world,
8: and, the, and it, you know, the Mark E. Waxman bill barely passed Congress, but in the Senate it's going to have a much rougher time. The good news is that a lot of the changes that Obama's making in the national energy policy are going to probably accomplish a lot more than we're going to get out of Specific numbers in Copenhagen. So I think that, you know, the stuff that he's doing in terms of ending subsidies, you know, this is one of the things he talked about this week that he's going to end all subsidies to yeah, the I love carbon that. industry. Yeah, I really
3: love that. That's
8: very those, that, that now a very big step forward. He's building out national grid systems that are going to be able to carry new forms of energy. He's helping, in many ways, these new renewable sources of power in the Midwest, the wind in the Midwest, the solar in the Southwest, to get on their feet and to compete against the incumbents. Once you have a national marketplace, they're going to blow the incumbents out of the water, and they're going to do it very quickly. You know, last year, Mike, there was in our country, while well, Exxon takes all of these ads out on TV saying, you know, renewables is only 5% of our national energy. We're going to have oil for the next 50 years, so just get used to it. But in fact, last year, we passed a, an important milestone. Last year, there was more renewable energy added to our grid than there was traditional fuels. Most people don't even know this, but the, the tide is turning because we can now produce renewables at a much lower cost than they can produce coal or nuke or oil energy. It's
4: a sin that somehow Light is changing to shallow And casting its shroud over
9: One of the most difficult and important issues facing the country, and the president, seems completely off the agenda right now. It's energy and where we get it. As you know, nothing came of that big global summit on climate change in Copenhagen last month. It simply fizzled. And once again, the president tried to put the best face on another disappointment. As my friend, the environmental activist and author Bill McKibben, wrote this week, the world came together and looked climate change fairly straight in the eye and then its most powerful nations, blinked. So what happens now? And what can you and I do about an energy crisis with issues so complex and confusing? Here's one thing to do. Read this book, Who Turned Out the Lights? Your Guided Tour to the Energy Crisis, by Scott Biddle and Gene Johnson of the nonprofit research group, publicagenda.org. The book cuts through the jargon, gets down to the basics, and presents options from across the political spectrum. You can consider it a breath of fresh air, free of carbon emissions, filled with good ideas, and a sense of humor. Scott Biddle and Gene Johnson, welcome to The Journal. So question, which country is guiltiest when it comes to releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the United States or China?
10: It's a neck-and-neck race, Uh, you know, and I I think it—it is helpful to think about the distinction there. You know, if you're talking about uh, the accumulated greenhouse gases, which is what really leads to global warming, um, it's the United States and Europe. You know, we got a head start in all this industrialization. We've been using coal and natural gas for many years now, so you know, we're the biggest uh, contributors there per person basis you know Americans really are using the energy we're using eighty percent of our energy comes from fossil fuels but in terms of the total emissions because China is so huge because they are building coal plants because they are getting cars because they are industrializing they are now the biggest emitter of uh, global warming emissions in the world so uh, you know depending on how you look at it there's plenty of guilt there
9: you say in here that there are six reasons we have to act soon what are the six reasons?
10: Uh, Number one is that the United States needs more energy. Uh, The projections are that we're going to need about 25% more energy in the next couple of decades. If you look around, it's perfectly clear we have more electronic gadgets than ever before. Uh, We're going to have more people in the United States, and all of us uh, use energy every day.
11: Number two is the world needs more energy, and it needs it even more than we do. World energy demand is projected to go up 40% over the next 20 years, largely because of what's happening in places like China and India as they grow and develop and become um, middle-class consumer societies this is going to cause more competition for energy across the board
10: there's, there's just one image that I like uh, that I think helps visualize it and it's that in China until recently not that many people had a private car if the Chinese were begin to have uh, own cars the way we do it would put a billion cars on the planet so if you're worried about global warming you have to think about that and even if you're not, you have to think about a billion Chinese drivers competing with Americans, competing with the Europeans, competing with the Indians for the oil that we can manage to get out of the ground and transmit it around the world. It is not going to be good for the price or the reliability of energy here.
9: Number three.
10: Uh, we are heavily dependent. About 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas. Uh, for oil and uh, natural gas in particular, uh, more and more people around the world want them. Uh, There's only so much of it. Uh, It's expensive to get and it's not going to be here forever and we need to get started on the on the alternatives.
11: Number four, climate change, which is the one most people hear about. The idea that, as most scientists accept, that the carbon dioxide we're putting out from the use of fossil fuels is fundamentally changing the world's climate and that is going to have an enormous impact on the world and we're going to have to cope with it and we're going to have to try and stabilize it.
10: Uh, number five is that our system for getting energy is much more precarious uh, than most people realize. I mean, I think most people know about the dangers of importing oil and if there's a revolution someplace or a terrorist attack on a pipeline, this sense prices is skyrocketing. Uh, the, the part of it that a lot of people don't realize is how precarious our le- electricity grid is. It's aging and creaking and, uh, you know, we're at risk the, the uh, natural gas uh, transport lines. So we really need to invest so it's not as as precarious as it really is now
11: finally too much of our energy comes from countries that essentially don't like us or at least we have challenges with if you look at world oil reserves 60% of them are in the Middle East Mm -hmm. only two or three percent are in the United States if we're going to keep using oil we're going to have to keep getting it from the Middle East and that's going to affect our politics and our national policy.
9: The other night I read a story about how we are running out of energy and we are at some point going to run out of fossil fuels and then the next morning I pick up the Financial Times and there's a story about the discovery of a huge new field off the coast of, of Africa and I say, wait a minute, I'm getting contradictory messages from the universe here.
10: Well, we do discover more and there's more out there to be discovered. I think the problem is scale. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the, uh, the United States runs through more than 7 billion uh, uh, barrels of oil a year in a, in a good year in 2007, so there may be a lot of oil out there, but it's, given how quickly Americans go through it, and given how quickly people around the world are beginning to go through it, we do need to have a more diverse supply.
11: Also, we've found possibly most of the cheap oil. We're going to have to go to places like the Arctic, we're going to have to go to deep water wells under the ocean now to get the reserves that remain. The stuff that's easy to find, we've found. The stuff we're finding is harder to get.
9: I'm reminded when I read the book of the energy crisis we experienced in 73 when OPEC uh, raised the prices, oil prices soared. 1978, during the Iranian Revolution, uh, prices jumped again. Prices jumped after Iraq invaded Kuwait. uh, Or the long gas lines after Hurricane Katrina. And when I think about those experiences and see us repeating the same sense of denial or consternation or frustration or uh, incapacity in in action, Uh, you invoke uh, Bill Murray in that movie (laughs) Groundhog Day.
11: We're just like Bill Murray who was in that movie doomed to live the same day over and over again until he got it right. We're living the same day over and over again on energy. We keep making the same mistakes. When prices go up, all of a sudden, we panic. We're willing to change. Uh, we make these dramatic uh, you know, short-term changes. And then when prices go down again, we forget all about it. And one of the problems is that all the things you talked about were short-term events, you know, very specific, driven events that raised prices. Now we're looking at some very serious long-term trends in both demand and in in the environmental front. These are not going to go away. They they are long-term changes in how the world can get energy and how it should get energy. We can't assume they're going to go away because they're
2: not.
0: Hi, everyone. Now, running this podcast is an absolute passion of mine that I've been pursuing for years. But of course, everyone understands that it takes a little bit of money to get along in this world. And that's where the members come in. Members sign up and donate as little as $5 a month, which allows me to pump out. 10 episodes per month now so while you're thinking about that and rationalizing that little expense just realize it breaks down to only 50 cents per episode and it's even less if you sign up for a full year and beyond that in return you get access to a set of members only raw feeds and these deliver audio plus video clips from the show as well as a separate feed just for bonus content that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor so for details please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com thanks for your support
8: Uh
4: As we've talked about for months here on Counterspin, outlets like the New York Times have given an enormous amount of coverage to the so-called Climate Gate scandal. That story, in a nutshell, stolen emails from a climate science center were used by climate change deniers to suggest that scientists were in a vast conspiracy to rig their data in order to make climate change appear much worse than it is. Despite the lack of evidence to that end, the story stayed in the media, often on the front page. Well, the British House of Commons has started its official inquiry into the scandal, and their first step was to announce that there was no evidence to support these charges. Of scientific misconduct. An independent investigation into the question is big news if you've already decided that the false charges are also big news. So it was curious to see the New York Times run a short AP Wire story about this on page 11. In reality, the panel's conclusion only bolsters what most observers already knew that there's little scandal here at all. But you wouldn't know that by reading papers like the New York Times.
10: issue where Americans are, and I include myself in this, before we started work on this, we're pitifully informed. Um, you know about four out of ten Americans cannot even name a fossil fuel so you really wonder how they're following this whole debate about fossil fuels and global warming I actually think it would improve the debate if we sort of stopped pointing with alarm about all the things that could go wrong and really started getting people talking about how we're gonna generate electricity what are we gonna do about our cars what are we gonna do about our houses look at our choices here they all have pros and cons
11: And I think that's one of the ways in which the debate that we're currently having is so unhelpful to most people, in that everyone is talking about percentages and numbers. Should we cut greenhouse gases 20% or 17%? And it makes a huge difference between the two. Should it be based on 1990 or 2005? Should it be 350 parts per million of carbon? No, maybe it's 450 parts uh, per million. I'm lost already. <laughs> and what it comes down to, though, are a few concrete choices, as Jean was saying. What kind of power plants do we want to build? And everything branches out from that. What do we put in our cars? Do we want to stay with a liquid fuel in our cars, like gasoline or biofuels or liquefied natural gas? In which case, our, the way we drive doesn't change that much. Or do we move to electricity, in which case we need to build an infrastructure for that. We can do these things as soon as we make the choice for what we want to do. But first, you have to lay options out for people, and have, so they can understand the pros and cons.
10: You know, it's interesting. In this country, we are so used to taking energy for granted. We flip on the switch, and it's there. Uh, we have had the advantage in our economy of cheap energy for a long, long time. But things are changing, and and the climate debate, uh, you know, really absorbs a lot of the uh, political attention. But we really want to shine a light on some of the other reasons that uh, Americans need to pay attention to
9: this. You talk about viewing with alarm. When I got to the end of your book, to a section you call The Last Picture Show, I was smiling (laughs) because it's been a long time since I remembered that old 1973 sci-fi movie Soylent Green starring Charlton Heston and my favorite all-time great character actor Edward G. Robinson.
7: Why in my day you could buy meat anywhere, eggs they had, real butter, fresh lettuce in the stores. I know, sir, you told me before. How can anything survive in a climate like this? A heat wave all year long.
9: You use that to make a point.
11: The point is that Hollywood has provided us with several visions of a horrible environmental future. Soylent Green is one of the most compelling. What would happen, basically, if we do nothing? Heston and Edward G. Robinson are living in a New York City that is broiling hot, that is crowded, that is poor, that people resort to eating soylent green, which I don't want to spoil the movie, (laughs) but let's just say that the rules on nutritional labels have been dramatically relaxed. And it raises the possibility that human decency itself doesn't survive this kind of catastrophic climate change.
10: The other, the opposite, is that we bring up the Mad Max. That's, that's the, the trilogy the, 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 with, uh, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, Mel, Gibson, Mel Gibson yeah. where human beings have just, in, living in this degraded civilization because they're so desperate for oil. So and you Des- know how people, I, again, mm-hmm. human decency is sort of at stake mm-hmm. because there's this you know, need for energy.
11: The thing about Mad Max, the beauty of Mad Max, is it poses that question that uh, lots of people have in the back of their minds, which is, when we run out of energy, do we run out of civilization as well? And the answer is, we don't have to run out of energy. There are lots of alternatives. They don't have to be the ones we use now. The ones we use now aren't going to go away soon, but they are finite. But we have lots of options here. All we have to do is be smart about it now. And the worst case scenario never comes.
9: So is Ed Harris in Apollo 13 a good model for us as we go forward?
11: I think he's an excellent model for us because he's focused on the practicalities.
5: Houston, we are venting something out into space.
7: I can see it outside of window one right now.
11: It's a movie about problem solving. uh... And there's this anthem that Ed Harris keeps repeating through the movie. Let's work the problem, people.
5: Let's work the problem, people. Let's not make things worse by guessing. 13, this is
10: Houston. We are going... We had a terrible emergency with these astronauts uh, loose in space with no way to come home, and yet through enterprise, through ingenuity, through cooperation, putting the arguing aside for a bit, they tried and tried and tried, and were able to come up with some solutions and bring the astronauts home.
11: There's another wonderful scene in that movie where they have to make, uh, basically, put a square peg in a round hole to keep the oxygen going for the astronauts, and they dump a bunch of stuff on the table. So this is what's in the spaceship. You know, this is what we have to work with, and they start taking it apart and working with it. That's really more the kind of debate we need, because fundamentally these are practical considerations. These are decisions about technology. They're decisions about economics. We're having a discussion about politics, and we're having a discussion about belief systems, and that sort of thing, and eventually you have to cut through that and get to how do we actually do this? How do you build this new energy world with the materials we have at
10: hand? It's an issue that's going to challenge us to be practical, to weigh pros and cons, not to be gullible and, and you know pretend that some easy answer is going to whether you know whether it's the left or the right, the environmentalists or the drill baby drill uh, group, you know this, these perfect little answers. You need to be very dubious about those. But this is what makes it. I think uh, this is an issue where Americans' practicality, uh, our sense of uh, innovation, our sense of fairness our sense of uh, let's see what we can do right now let's be pragmatic about this if we can pull those to the fore we can address this issue
5: Barack Obama just pulled a big switcheroo in his dangerous decision to open up our coastal waters to offshore drilling. During the presidential campaign, Obama took the opposite approach and supported the moratorium on offshore drilling. What's more, he pummeled John McCain for switching his own position on this issue, said Obama back then. What wouldn't do a thing to lower gas prices is John McCain's new proposal to open up Florida's coastline to offshore drilling. McCain's old position against drilling was the right one. Obama said back then, offshore drilling, Obama said back then would not produce any oil for at least 10 years and wouldn't be fully online for a generation. Offshore drilling, Obama said back then, would worsen our addiction to oil, and it wasn't the kind of change the American people are working for. But that was then, and now is now. And now, for political reasons, Obama has embraced George Bush's proposal and Sarah Palin's proposal to drill baby drill. Obama did so reportedly because he wants to throw some more bones to Republicans to get them to sign on to his climate bill. But you can't protect the environment by jeopardizing it. Obama knew this back then.
0: You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support.
12: Uh, the number one people behind all of the groups, the, and they fund 40 different organizations uh, that are d- deny global warming. The main group is called Koch Industries, K-O-C-H. Now, Koch Industries is a fascinating thing. It was actually started by a guy named Fred Koch. <laughs> you know one of the ways that he got rich. Uh, he built oil refineries, refineries in the Soviet Union. When Joseph Stalin was in charge, then he came to the U.S. and he was one of the co-founders of the John Birch Society, which is extreme right-wing. So, I mean, if you want to talk about socialist, communist, Stalinist, and right-wing, fascist, etc., it's all wrapped in one here. And I'm not saying that Fred Koch was a fascist, and I don't want to make Glenn Beck-like comments, but there is some great irony in how this company got built by doing business with Stalin and then starting the John Birch study. But now let's get to today, which is a lot more relevant. Uh, his sons uh, now run the company, and it's a privately held company, second largest privately held company in the country, uh, Charles Koch and David Koch. They're worth about 14 and $16 billion apiece. They're among the richest people in the whole world. Uh, I believe they're in the top 20 uh, in in the world, and the uh, 19th richest person in the world is one of them, and they're both in the top 10 in America. So. Richer than the Google founders, uh, richer than George Soros, etc. So, what do they do with their money? Well, they, they spend it uh, on right-wing organizations for a number of reasons. Why? First, they want to deny global warming. Why? Because their main business is oil refineries. So, if you got oil refineries, well, you're not interested in the green movement. That costs you money. That doesn't make you money. So, what do they do? They invest in, the, in their case since 1997, forty-eight and a half. Million dollars into these groups. Now think about that. For them, they run this giant corporation. It's one of the biggest in the country. $48.5 million dollars is almost nothing. And that, the fluctuation in oil prices alone, which affects their business on any given year, would easily make up that $48.5 million. Dollars. But in the world of politics, that's a gigantic amount of money. So like I said it funds 40 different organizations. And what do they do? Well one of the things that they do is they go out there and they are think tanks and they put out papers and uh they do lobbying and they organize grassroots efforts. One of the uh organizations they fund fund is Americans for Prosperity. Those are the guys that organize the Tea Party protests. So they got 5 million dollars from Coke Industries. Okay? So some of that goes to that. So Tea Party guys think, oh, yeah, we're doing this for us. No, you're not. You're doing it for Coke Industries. <laughs> you're doing it for different reasons. Now, in health care reform, they're against health care reform. Apparently, they think that's going to hurt their bottom line in some way. And for them, for that particular company, or for those particular owners of the company, maybe they're right. Okay, But they're certainly not representing the people of the United States or those Tea Party protesters, nor do they give a damn about them. Now, but that's small apples for them. Real business is in uh, climate change denial and in taxes. So in climate change denial, and that's what Greenpeace focuses on, um, one of the things they do is they fund non-scientifically, non-peer-reviewed scientific studies, which are in fact non-scientific studies. But they put science in the title. So for example, one of the ones that they funded was a study on how polar bears' uh, populations are not suffering in the Arctic because of global warming. Now, when that was reviewed by other scientists, it's flat out not true. Right? They, they hired a bunch of people. They paid them a lot of money to write this honestly crap. And, but it didn't matter. They don't care. So even after the other scientists said, look, this is proven fact. The, the population is going down. You can't write this or you can't put this out. After they knew that, they put out the paper anyway. Why? Because they just want to sow some doubt. They want to say, well, some scientists say this and other scientists say that. So let's delay. Let's not do anything. Let's keep relying on oil because that makes them a tremendous amount of money. And this is how we get the disinformation we have out there. Another huge issue for Coke Industries is taxes $48.5 million. I mean, they easily save that on the lower taxes that the Republicans and the conservatives fight for. They say, oh, lower taxes for the American people, but that's not reality. For example, Obama. Had cut taxes for people making under two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but he had to, in order to try to balance the budget in some way, raise taxes from people making above two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And for a guy making three hundred thousand, that that affects him a little bit because it remember it's marginal tax rate. So between two hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand, it gets a slightly higher uh, tax rate, right? But for a guy that has fourteen or sixteen billion dollars, that extra couple of extra percentage points is hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. So for them, of course, they have all the incentive in the world to organize these protests, to do the think tanks, to do the ads, to do all that effort, to say, no, 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 no. We have to have lower taxes, lower taxes, not for the regular Americans, but for everybody, including the richest Americans, namely the Koch family. And this is how they buy, you know, what they would call facts on their side. They buy a report, they and they, they go to the media, and they say, oh, well, here's a scientist report. They buy protests, they organize them, and they get people like Dick Armey, et cetera, to lead that group to say, all right, now go, go, fight against government regulation, fight for lower taxes. So as all these conservatives think that they're fighting for themselves, they're not. They got funded to fight against their own interests by the people running Coke Industries. So they they're running an enormous scam on you and if you're confused as to which party did they favor in the 2008 elections uh coke industries uh gave 88% to the Republican party okay of their givings now the rest i can assure you went to the corporate democrats the blue dog democrats etc and I, and i'm i i love that uh, greenpeace did this little study uh, to give you a, a sense of not just how this system works, but exactly where the money goes and exactly who spends the most amount of money, to give you a sense of perspective, since uh, 2005, between 05 and 08, the coke industry spent 25 million dollars on these kind of political movements. Exxon only spent 8.9 million. Okay, and if you look at the groups that are fighting global warming and denying it all those right-wing think tanks, et cetera, they're all funded by only three groups, Coke Industries, ExxonMobil, and the Petroleum Lobbyist Group, which is a combination of all of the different oil companies uh, represented by that lobbyist group. You think they care about actual science? You think they care if the planet is warming or not? No, they care about making an extra buck. Even if you're a conservative, that's got to be patently obvious to you. Can't you see the game they're playing? So don't believe the hype. If they're real scientists, not funded by these guys, and they so and they have real doubts about global warming, I of course I want to listen to them. Uh, We have all I care about is the facts. I I don't have a horse in that race. I don't need global warming to be real, but that's what every non-bought scientist says. You've got to look at their motivations. And you gotta see why they're riling you up.
13: Environmentalists called President Barack Obama's decision to open portions of the East Coast to oil and gas exploration a wholesale assault on the oceans, while some coastal residents and lawmakers applauded the idea of cheap energy and jobs that oil platforms off their beaches could bring close quote. So begins an April 1st AP story. Not every report on Obama's offshore drilling plan, which also includes parts of the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska, thumbnailed it as cheap energy and jobs, but implicit in much of the coverage is that such oil has the potential to lower gasoline prices. The March 30th Los Angeles Times explained that Obama's, quote, announcement will come in the run-up to summer driving season, as gasoline prices have begun a national march toward $3 a gallon, close quote. And they added that, quote, energy companies and conservatives have clamored for increased drilling since gasoline prices spiked during the 2008 presidential campaign, close quote. It might be hard to keep in mind while reading such a piece that drilling in coastal areas would have only the most minimal impact on the price of gasoline, and even that impact would be a decade away. According to the Federal Energy Information Administration, considered the authority source on energy, opening up the entire continental shelf of the lower 48 states would have virtually no effect at all on crude prices because oil prices are determined on the international market. It doesn't seem too much to ask that such basic data be central in reporting this story.
14: bipartisan support in this country for the idea of closing down the prison at Guantanamo. Do you remember that? A few years ago, everyone basically agreed that Guantanamo needed to be shut down. Barack Obama was in favor of that. John McCain was in favor of that. George W. Bush was in favor of that. And then something weird happened. Barack Obama became president. He adopted the idea. He actually tried to do it. He tried to take the steps to close Guantanamo. And Republicans balked they turned against something they used to be for. They started talking about President Obama wanting to let terrorists loose in your neighborhood. Do you remember that? Well, after that, the health reform battle came along. And again, Republicans started arguing against something that they used to be for. In the case of health reform, that something was their idea in the first place. The idea of an individual mandate so that people have to buy health insurance. That's a Republican idea. That was the Republican alternative to President Clinton's health reform proposal in the 90s. It was the basis of Mitt Romney's health reform plan in Massachusetts. It was something that Republicans like Chuck Grassley said they supported as recently as last year. Then President Obama adopted the idea and Republicans started attacking it as unconstitutional. They turned against something they used to be for. Then Congress started debating the idea of creating a bipartisan deficit commission. And it looked like that was going to pass until seven Republicans, who used to support that idea, changed their minds and backed out after President Obama said he wanted to adopt it. They turned against something they used to be for. Same thing happened with PAYGO, the pay-as-you-go budgeting rules for Congress. This was something Republicans had said they were for, but after President Obama adopted the idea and actually proposed it, Republicans turned against it. They were against something they used to be for. Well, that's the backdrop against which today President Obama came out and officially adopted yet another Republican idea.
6: Today we're announcing the expansion of offshore oil and gas exploration. MY ADMINISTRATION WILL CONSIDER POTENTIAL AREAS FOR DEVELOPMENT IN THE MID- AND SOUTH ATLANTIC AND THE GULF OF MEXICO.
14: OFFSHORE OIL AND GAS DRILLING. As you probably recall, this is something that was not only a Republican idea, but a rather unimaginative Republican chant throughout the presidential election campaign in 2008, during the Republican National Convention, you might recall. You, you, you would have been forgiven for thinking that John McCain was running solely on a drill-nail platform.
1: The right course is the one championed by Ronald Reagan 30 years ago and by John McCain and Sarah Palin today. The immediate drilling for more oil off our shores. He'll do it with an all-of-the-above approach, including nuclear power and, yes, offshore oil drilling. Drill,
3: baby, drill? (laughs) Drill, baby, drill. We will drill new wells offshore, and we'll drill them now. Let me make it very
14: clear. DRILL, BABY, DRILL, AND DRILL NOW. NOW THAT PRESIDENT OBAMA HAS COME OUT IN FAVOR OF THAT, WHAT DO YOU THINK THE REPUBLICAN RESPONSE IS? Naturally, the top Republican in the House, John Boehner, blasted the idea, saying, quote, the Obama administration continues to defy the will of the American people. John Boehner saying that even though the president's in favor of offshore drilling now, he's obviously not in favor of it enough. The number three House Republican, Mike Pence, also blasted the decision today, saying, the president's announcement today is a smokescreen. Unfortunately, this is yet another feeble attempt to gain votes for the president's national energy tax bill that is languishing in the Senate. Now, not all Republicans have reacted like this today. The president appears to have bamboozled Republicans a little bit, actually, by giving them what they said they wanted. Alongside the negative reactions from people like John Boehner and Mike Pence came mildly positive statements from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator John McCain, and even Senator James Inhofe. But man does not govern by press release alone. The real question is whether Obama's big concession to Republicans on policy means that he will actually get Republican votes for his energy bill. The White House obviously hopes that will be the case. In leaking this news to The New York Times last night, administration officials who did not want to be named said that the announcement today was intended to, among other things, win political support for comprehensive energy and climate legislation. Democratic Senator John Kerry, whose job is to get that legislation through the Senate, Tried to be optimistic about this today as well. His office saying, "Quote, in the difficult work of putting together a 60-vote coalition, Senator Kerry has put aside his own longtime policy objections and has been willing to explore potential energy sources off our coasts." Here's the question, though: Senator Kerry and President Obama willing to put away their longtime stated objections to this Republican idea in exchange for what? Last month, President Obama gave into another Republican energy demand, cleared the way for more nuclear power plants to be built in this country. In exchange for what? It's one thing to be willing to compromise on specific things in order to to make a bill good enough to pass. But that only makes sense if you are getting something in exchange for making that bill less perfect. What are President Obama and Democrats Getting here, exactly.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. So if you can think back to, you know, like 55 minutes ago in this show... Uh, you will recall that there was an interview. Uh, Tom Hartman did an interview with Dr. James Hansen, and that he's a pretty interesting dude. I thought I'd give a little bit of background on that. Uh, in a in a previous life of mine, I worked uh, exclusively on climate change issues. Worked for a nonprofit organization, and at one event, we we put on our organization put on an event and invited James Hansen to come talk. And so you know as part of that I was I was there as the video guy and and so uh, before the event I had the opportunity to interview James Hansen and uh and when I say that I interviewed him what I mean is I held the camera while my boss interviewed him and um and by held the camera I mean that the camera was on a tripod and I stood next to it while it recorded but anyways I was there and you know so he he said something you know way way back then this was uh i don't even know it it might have been 2 years ago now um but but i'm i'm not exactly clear on that maybe it was only last summer and he he said something that he mentioned also in in this interview that he's he doesn't really like doing public speaking because frankly he's not very good at it you know which is kind of funny because he does a lot of public speaking these days but he says what what he really prefers to do is write letters and he spends a lot of time writing letters to world leaders you know screaming at the top of his lungs uh, in written form uh, trying to get people to take action on climate change so i thought i thought that was pretty interesting because he he's uh, he admits so readily that he's really good at science and really bad at talking and and then you know after our interview and and we had a a whole program, uh, in, you know, in front of a big audience and everything. And, and he got up and he gave his speech and he was right. He, he wasn't very good at it. I mean, he's a pretty dry, pretty boring scientific guy. Um, you know, the, the, the most amount of humor he got in, in there was, uh, you know, self-deprecating about how, Uh, uninteresting the things are that he talks about is just that's the only way he knows how to talk about it but beyond that because as i said he's an interesting guy last summer he actually got arrested protesting get this protesting the mining of coal in west virginia by the massey coal company the very same one that just had the big mine explosion recently so, uh, so James Hansen, he's a you know interesting guy, really active, and you know I don't I don't know if he does anything with his life other than uh, just live climate change and you know the science and speaking about it, and and then he started attending rallies. You know he attended a rally with with our group in Washington D.C. You know marching uh, and and then getting himself arrested in West Virginia. Like he's he's just a pretty serious dude, and in that interview that you just heard. He backed up something that I talked about the last time I had a climate change episode. I went out of my way to talk about the difference between cap and trade and cap and dividend. And, you know, I did not get my views on the difference between the two and my support of cap and dividend versus cap and trade and my thought that cap and trade is, uh, you know, an idea that's got its heart in the right place but is kind of doomed to failure. And, uh, you know, I didn't get my opinion about that from James Hansen, and I'm pretty sure—I mean, I I haven't spoken to him in a while, but I'm pretty sure he didn't get his opinion on cap-and-trade versus cap-and-dividend from me, but there's something to be said for the fact that we agree on that point. And so he talked about it a little bit, and he he brought up something that I realized I didn't mention before that I I wanted to tack on— which is that one of the biggest differences between the two is, you know, basically you're trying to regulate emissions. The way cap and dividend does it is it caps the emissions not at the point of emission, but at the point of either extraction, extracting the coal out of the ground. You know, taking coal out of the ground doesn't put carbon dioxide in the air, but you know what's going to happen down the line so you you can go ahead and issue the permits right at that point of extraction or like oil coming off of a tanker as soon as it comes in to the country that's when you can tax it you don't have to wait for it to be burned and then release the emissions in order to to tax it and so that's it's called an upstream cap where you you cap it way way upstream you know many steps removed from the the end user, where it's finally being combusted and turned into energy, or turned into, you know, gasoline and, and driving a car or whatever. And so this is different because cap and trade doesn't work that way. It it sells these permits to many, many, many thousands of companies that all have emissions all across the economic spectrum, instead of just capping it up at the the very, very beginning, and then letting those costs, the extra costs, then trickle down through the system naturally. The end result of this, of course, is that cap and dividend is just much, much simpler to deal with. You have so few companies that do the extraction or import the oil or whatever. It's so much simpler to deal with than the thousands and thousands and thousands of companies that would be dealing with the cap and trade system. In case you missed it, for the full details on, you know, my whole explanation on the difference between cap and trade and cap and dividend, go back and listen to, you know, at least the final comments, if not the whole thing, of the March 24th episode, which is, you know, labeled in the title as Climate Change. Now I just want to thank a couple of members. Marty P. is the longest serving, unthanked member. I like to do that every once in a while. He signed up way back on August 24th. And has been sticking with the show ever since. You know, I just uh, waited until now to to thank him just just to just to make sure he really had it in him. You know, I w- when he signed up, you know, I don't I don't know him. I, I wouldn't know him from Adam, but uh, you know, I I just I had my suspicions. I didn't know if he was gonna be in it for the long haul, but uh, over the last seven months, he's really proved himself. So he's he's earned this thank you. And uh, and then a little bit more recently, Troy C signed up on October seventh. And has been doing likewise, sticking with the show uh, month after month. So huge thanks to both of those members, all the members who help keep the show going. I hope that it is painfully obvious by now that uh, you know this show just would not be anything resembling what it is without the support of uh, of the members and you know and other individuals who, who choose to make you know one-time donations. That's wonderful as well. So. I just can't thank you guys enough. I certainly hope that all of you will consider supporting the show in the most fundamental way possible. Just telling a, a person or five about it uh, makes a huge difference to help spread the word of the show. And now to uh, to stay tuned in between episodes, uh, please join up with us at Facebook or Twitter. Frankly, if you're not on the Facebook uh, fan page, you're really missing out. There are some great conversations going on there. You know, everything from, uh, you know, when I screwed up with the uh, putting the, the gay pride flag in front of, front of the Vatican in the most recent uh, religion episode that people were, were upset about. There was a conversation about it there. I, I posed the question there, and, and people had a chance to comment. And I uh, expressed my frustration about Glenn Beck controlling the conversation about the media on Facebook, and, and lots of people uh, had things to say about that as well. So you can certainly join in those conversations if you would like. For details on the show, including the sources and the music used in every episode, all that is always listed on the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month now, thanks to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
4: Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room The shadow bases the throne Will take you out any open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like